You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from student minister Andrew Beal coaching the high school cross-country team for Springboro, and I've really, really enjoyed it. I just get to hang out with high school students every day, and uh, I was excited, one, to do that, but also, um, you know, get to run a little bit myself, get a little healthier, maybe lose a few pounds, just a few, um, but also, I was disappointed because early in the season, I was reminded that I get shin splints almost immediately, like really terrible, painful shin splints, and if you've had shin splints before, you know what I'm talking about, and if you haven't, you just think us shin splint people are complaining for no reason at all. But I get shin splints. But every now and again, I feel good enough to jog around. It's actually to the point that when I do kind of, you know, jog around the school and, you know, the different packs of students are doing their own thing, if I'm passed by a pack of runners, they actually, you know, clap and applaud for me as I go by. It's to that point. Uh, but when I am more like, you know, jogging, sometimes I listen to music, sometimes I'll do the podcast thing. And there's a podcast that I've just come to love. Maybe you've heard of it or listened to yourself. It's called The Way I Heard It, and it's hosted by Mike Rowe, the Dirty Jobs guy from the Discovery Channel show uh, years ago. And these episodes, they're five, six, no more than seven minutes long. And the idea is he'll tell whatever story, and there's always a bit of a twist at the end. Uh, It's either he's been talking about a famous person, a celebrity the entire time, or the story he's been telling leads up to be like a linchpin in some major world event. It's like, oh, very cool story, how it ends. So I'm about 25 episodes in, and there's one of these episodes, one story that I just love. I love a lot of them, but this one might be my favorite. It centers on 14-year-old student Jim and his teacher, Mr. Crouch. It takes place back in the uh, early 40s. So 14-year-old Jim, he was a student in Mr. Crouch's class, and uh, Jim, he was one of these very shy, withdrawn, uh, kind of off-to-the-edge, by-himself kind of students. And Mr. Crouch, he was a skilled teacher. He knows, uh, you know, every now and again, uh, students t- see, or teachers see something in their students, And uh, he noticed that even though Jim was not a talker, he noticed that uh, whenever the subject would turn to poetry, Jim would kind of perk up a little bit. It was subtle, but he could see that Jim would kind of lean in just a little bit more. See, Jim had a terrible, terrible stutter, and the idea was, at least Mr. Crouch thought, well, maybe Jim is so... uh, interested and tied to the written word because the spoken word comes so difficult and such, uh, comes, um, comes to him so difficultly. Anyway, so one evening, uh, Mr. Crouch, he assigns a piece of homework. And the homework is, go home, write a poem, and it can be about anything you want it to be about. The only caveat is it needs to be about a topic of which you are passionate, a thing, person, topic, whatever, but you need to be passionate about it. So Jim goes home to write this poem. Around this time in our country's history, uh, scurvy and rickets were a public health hazard, particularly to to kids and teens. So what would happen is the dead of winter, this is Detroit, Michigan, and to kind of combat that, they would have citrus fruit shipped in from Florida. And one of these days around this time, Jim got his hands on a grapefruit. Never had a grapefruit before, but he tries this, and it is the most delicious, delectable piece of fruit, maybe food he's ever had. So this poem he goes home to write, he titles, Ode to a Grapefruit. 
Anyway, so he finishes the poem. He turns it in, and Mr. Crouch uh, graves all of these poems, and he is just floored, stunned, blown away by Jim's Ode to a Grapefruit. So the next day, he's passing out these poems back. They've been graded, and he says, hey, many of these poems were good. A few of them were excellent. One is extraordinary. And it was at this point that Mr. Crouch, he kind of takes a gamble. You know, he kind of has a heart for Jim. He wants to see him succeed. So he kind of goes out on him and he tries something. Knowing full well that Jim wrote this himself, he said, Jim, this poem of yours is extraordinary. It's really good. In fact, I think it's too good. I don't think you wrote it. To prove that you wrote it, why don't you stand up and if these are your own words, speak as if they are. Convince us. So like anyone who is accused of plagiarism, who is not a plagiarist, rightly there's a bit of anger in his voice, but he stands up and he recites Ode to a Grapefruit flawlessly. Big, booming, clear as a bell voice. Mr. Crouch's gamble paid off and Jim learned something that day. If he's reciting something, he doesn't stutter. Jim begins to realize he has a great gift for memorization. He becomes part of the debate club at school. He goes into the theater. After school, he goes to Broadway, finds his home on the stage. Eventually, over his career, he wins a Tony Award for his work on the stage and productions of Shakespeare. Could memorize entire plays like this. He wins an Emmy for his uh, work in television, and he's also eventually given an honorary Oscar, an honorary Academy Award. And he's not known for those three things, even though those are fantastic accomplishments. This guy is most known for his voice. We know him best as the voice of Darth Vader or Mufasa from The Lion King. This is a story of James Earl Jones, one of, if not the most recognizable voice in our country, one of the most recognizable voices in the world. And all that started from a seed of confidence when an opportunity was given for him to be bold. That is our word for the morning, bold or boldness. So uh, we are in a series called Go Fish here at Southwest. This is week three of seven, I believe. And just the title of the morning, if you care about sermon titles, is Fish Guts. We're not talking about guts at all, but at least not fish guts. It's just that boldness tie-in. Some people like clever sermon titles. I didn't come up with it. Anyway, so each October, we do this church-wide small group study that accompanies the weekend series, and it is Go Fish. Many of you are going through this material in your small groups. And we have things like purpose statements and mission statements and a vision statement here at Southwest. And our purpose statement, kind of the reason why we exist in the first place, is to love God, love people, serve the community, share Jesus. We kind of whittle that down to love, serve, and share. You can see it up uh, up on the signs behind me. And we kind of cycle through those each October. And this year, the highlighted word is share. That's why it is highlighted in the middle, even though it's driving so many of us crazy that they are out of order. Does that bother anyone else? Like a million people? Yeah, okay. So, yeah, so that's the reason. We have a reason, so we've bonded together there. Like so many hands came up last hour. It's like, I'm with you. But we are highlighting share. And this share word, it's very much tied in with our mission statement of following Jesus, making disciples. And we kind of took that phrase as a cue from Jesus' own playbook in Matthew 4 when Jesus calls his first disciples, Peter and Andrew. He puts it this way. Come follow me, from Matthew 4, 19. Follow me. And I will make you fish for people. Sharing, fishing for people, that's kind of the metaphor that we have going forward. And like I said this morning, we're talking fish guts and boldness. 
And just to kind of get us in this world of, you know, fear and, uh, you know, being bold or not being bold, uh, if we're in this room, it means that someone at some point in our lives loved us enough to share Jesus with us. Someone took Jesus' words of fishing for people seriously, and they came fishing for us. They threw out a line, they threw out a net, and we were caught. And we can remember fondly that individual or individuals who played that role, just so thankful that they brought Jesus to our attention, made us fall in in love with Jesus as well. However, for a lot of us, when it comes time to be the fishers, be the fishermen or fisherwomen, we kind of throw up our hands or we cross our arms like, ooh, yeah, I'm super thankful that someone came fishing for me, but the idea of me fishing for anyone else is intimidating, I don't want to do it. I kind of want to be on the sidelines and up to it. If you're going through this, uh, the small material, uh, Andy Stanley, he kind of whittles down to, usually it's just fear that gets in the way. Fear of not having the right words, not knowing enough, not being able to answer a question that someone asks. But that's, a lot of, that's where a lot of us find ourselves. Very thankful that we were fished for, but the idea of us fishing for someone else, not nearly as attractive the disciples were certainly in this, uh, in this boat at one time. Uh, we're going to be in Acts 4 talking about Peter and John. But before there, where we see the extreme boldness of these, uh, these disciples, uh, I want to just look at this small portion from Peter's life when he was at his most, uh, most afraid, when fear absolutely consumed him. This is from the end of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has already been taken prisoner by the Romans, and he is uh, in front of the authorities just being questioned. He's not to the point of being tortured or crucified yet. It's that first night, just a few hours after he's been uh, taken. And Peter is able to watch this unfold from afar. Here's how the episode goes from Mark 14. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of these servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, you are one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entry, further away from the action. Just then a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, this man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them. You are a Galilean. And Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying about this. I don't know this man you're talking about. And just to get an idea of how serious this denial is, because there's something lost in translation from then till now, if Peter were to say this today, it would be as extreme as him saying, I don't blanking know this guy. That's how consumed with fear he is. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time, and suddenly Jesus' words from before flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And Peter broke down and wept. It's safe to say that this is one of, if not the lowest moment in Peter's life. And I wanted to start there because in Acts 4, where we're about to jump in, we see Peter on the other end of the spectrum where he is at his boldest. And I want to point out this contrast because every one of us, no matter how afraid we are, we've never been to this point of fear, we all have the potential, with the help of the Holy Spirit especially, to be as bold as we're going to see Peter in Acts 4. 
So it'll be up on the screens, but if you have your Bible, either you know, a hard copy or on your phone, you can follow along there as well. But instead of like diving down deep into this section, we're going to be more just kind of skimming the top. Imagine that we're a rock being skipped, just lightly tapping the surface of this text, just noticing a few things about the boldness of Peter and John and what we can learn from that. So uh, the first 10 verses of Acts 4, here they are. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. I'll pause. Uh, Just in Acts 3, here's what's happened. Peter and John, they find themselves in Jerusalem. They came across a crippled person sitting next to one of the city gates, and they had the ability to heal him, so they did. And when you heal somebody in a crowded place, that gets everyone's attention. And when you have everyone's attention, that gives you an opportunity to talk about Jesus, and it's an opportunity that Peter and John have taken. So they've just been confronted by priests, temple guards, Sadducees, big names. Verse 2. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it, so the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. This is a wow moment. I'll pause to say wow. Wow. That's a lot of guys. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. Anybody who's anybody is standing here. These are big names. And they brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Just the first thing I like to notice out of this first 10 verses is right in verse 1. They're speaking to all the people and then a bunch of people show up who have pressure to have the power to stop them. When God is moving and where God is moving, there will be interruptions. Whenever something wonderful or kingdom-impacting has happened, distractions almost, if not always, show up. Roadblocks, obstacles, reasons to stop, reasons to give up. Some of us, if ever we find ourselves uh, playing the role of uh, taking the kingdom to places where it hasn't been before, some of us get very, very easily discouraged when things don't go our way, even the uh, most minor inconvenience. We take it as a very easy reason to say, well, I tried. God must not want me to do this. He closed the door. Where God's moving, there will be interruptions. But one thing I like is Peter and John aren't stopped in the slightest. They don't even hesitate. They are not thrown by the biggest names, the biggest authority around. They keep talking. Something else I really like from this section is uh, when when they're asking, by what power and whose name are you doing this healing? Uh, Peter immediately, and I mean immediately, gives credit to Jesus. When we do good things in the name of Jesus, you know, we get compliments or kudos, then the typical thing is saying thank you, and that's always appropriate, always uh, you know, being thankful for uh, compliments. But also, uh, being human, we love taking credits. Like, yeah, I put a lot of work into this. Or, yeah, I've been putting a lot of thought into this, and I'm really glad this you know, all worked out. You know, we had a good team. But we're, uh, sometimes we just forget or we just don't even think to, let's, no, let's point every good thing 
Let's point it to Jesus. There's a piece in Romans that says, every good and perfect gift comes from him. These apostles, doing the work of Jesus, give immediate credit to him. And there's just a third small thing from this is, when he does respond, it says in verse 8, that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he responded to them. Peter's boldness is not coming from himself, his own personality. Even though he's kind of a bold guy, Peter's one of these speak first, ask questions later, or think later. Many of us can sympathize with that kind of personality. But it says that this boldness comes from the Holy Spirit. And when boldness comes from the Holy Spirit, uh, there's something unstoppable about it. There's some power in there. Even if you are on the introverted side of things like I am, the Holy Spirit gives us boldness and power when... We just didn't think we had it before. And it can get us in on the action. So we're in, you know, the fall small group kickoff season. We started a few weeks ago. Uh, My young adult group, we started, I think, the last week of September. Uh, We meet uh, on Thursdays at the Panera Bread at Austin Landing. And so uh, that last Thursday in September, I was driving there, and I round the corner. There's that drive, that road between Panera and, like, the Broken Egg Cafe and the Noodles and Company. It was that stretch. I round the corner, and I noticed ahead of me there are two cars, you know, right there. I was like, ooh, there's been a fender bender. We got some action here. So uh, I get even more excited because I continue driving toward them. I was like, oh, this just happened because the drivers are getting out of their vehicles and going around to confront each other. So I'm like, okay. There's some action here I'm going to do. I'm going to maybe play a role, do something. So I do what many of us would or would want to do. I pull around. I pull into the Panera parking lot, and I find a space closest to the action to where the collision has happened. And I turn off the car, and I take off my seatbelt, and I sit and watch because there might be a fight. <laughs> and we all like, we can't get out of that mentality from junior high. If a fight's going down, we want to watch. We don't want anyone to get really hurt, but, you know, I just... You want a little bit of shoving, maybe, you know, a trip, you know, fall. No one gets hurt, but just some little action. And, you know, nothing really happened. One guy was extremely unfair, very much a hothead, but there wasn't even so much as like a finger pointed in someone's chest, so I was really disappointed. And everyone drives away. I even found out there was no actual collision either. It was just like almost happened, which made it even more lame in retrospect. But uh, as I was thinking about that and thinking about this weekend in boldness, I got to thinking, how many of us are just content to sit on the sidelines and watch the good stuff unfold? How many of us just like to be spectators? A lot of us. Spectating is so much easier than actually jumping in and doing something. Many of us lack boldness in this way. Verse 13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men? They asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign. Uh, Everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? You can hear the defiance in that. We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. One thing I like from this section, again, just skimming across the top, is boldness will amaze people. At least boldness with truth attached to it. 
boldness with the flavor of the Holy Spirit that goes with it. And in this case, the boldness of Peter and John that was so impressive is, it says these uh, teachers, these lawyers, these officials of the law, uh, they could see that Peter and John says were ordinary men. They had no special training at all in scriptures, had no formal Bible education. And even Jesus knew this when he recruited them back in the gospels. These were ordinary guys. Nothing special about them. The definition of average. And I like that this is here, that ordinary people like Peter and John can be perceived as bold, not even perceived, but are bold by people who need some boldness. I'm glad this is here because I want all of us to hear and understand that boldness can make up for lack of education, can make up for lack of status, can make up for lack of position. There are so many excuses in those areas like, oh, I don't have a degree in, in the Bible, I don't have a theology degree, or I'm not all that educated to begin with, never even went to college, or I've only been following Jesus for you know, six months, maybe even five years, I still feel like I don't know anything at all, or I'm just a nobody here in this building, no one would listen to me. You look at the life of Peter and John, we can see that that's not true. Powered by boldness through the Holy Spirit, they have the attention of everybody. And a lot of people who matter. People who are extremely intimidating. I was thinking, you know, uh, back uh, about a mission trip I took back in the spring of 2009 when I was in college. Uh, me and some friends were in the habit of, you know, taking a mission trip every single year. And 2009, that spring, found us in San Angelo, Texas. Uh, we were working at a, in a rougher part of the town with, uh, it was a student ministry, it was a student club uh, that met, it was part of a church, and when we got there, there was just a lot of VBS, backyard Bible stuff, they'd go out, load kids from neighborhoods onto buses, bring them back to us, you get the idea. And uh, we, we were each given like a, a crop of like nine to ten students, and I had about, uh, my students were about ten years old, give or take, and there was one from the very first day that I just kind of noticed, not unlike how Mr. Crouch noticed Jim. And this kid, he was quiet. He was withdrawn. He didn't seem to have, uh, he didn't seem to have any friends. And um, just something to know about this area of San Angelo and these kids. Uh, each one of these kids, like, if they didn't have a relative in prison or who had been in prison, then they were extremely lucky. They were in that rare pocket. So prison was a reality, either directly or by association. And I remember that first day, uh, all these kids, you know, probably 100, 150 were in a room much like this. And the lady teaching from stage asked a question for everyone to raise their hand. They said, who here thinks their life is bad and doesn't think it's going to get any better? And my kid named Michael Kennedy, he raises his hands with just such sadness and sincerity across his face. And if you were there, that would have broken your heart like it did mine. So I only pay more attention to Michael Kennedy this entire week. And I actually eventually uh, got a picture of him. He's, uh, his picture is in a frame back in my apartment. He's a reminder of a number of things for me if ever I get discouraged or lose passion behind my own personal mission. But the one thing with Michael Kennedy that particularly stands out, it was our final day there. Everyone's out in this massive yard playing games. We have getting all the kids riled up with like kickball or something. And for whatever reason, we always get kids riled up right before we want them to sit down and pay attention. So we grab them all in, and it's time for this Bible lesson, and it's hard to get kids to settle down when you're about to teach something that's in their eyes, you know, probably boring. 
anyway, so kind of getting these kids vlogged. I have my kids uh, settled down. I have my Bible open. And just looking at Michael, you can just tell he's getting frustrated. He's looking around. He's not riled up. He's not having any of this excitement. He wants to get straight to whatever this leader has to say from the Bible. And you can just see this frustration rising up more and more until he finally breaks. And to his peers, he yells, be quiet. This means something to some of us. This Jesus thing means something to Peter and John. And it means something to us. One thing, maybe it means so much to Peter and John and people like us, but especially Peter and John, that I want to point out is Peter and John had a heavenly perspective on this, not an earthly one. They took their role as citizens of heaven very seriously. And when you have that heavenly mindset, instead of one uh, trapped and you know, compounded by this earthly view, then you get to see long-term. You get to take that eternal perspective. And that eternal perspective is the only thing that matters in the context of eternity is our relationship with Jesus. And that is what is feeding this boldness through the Holy Spirit from Peter and John to everyone. Right in front of people who have the power to see them tortured, fed to lions, skinned alive, beheaded, burned in oil, whatever, they say, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? It doesn't sound like there's any fear there. After some more threatening from these people of authority, Peter and John are allowed to go. Verse 23. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. And when they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel all were united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. This word boldness is mentioned a couple times, and that they were praying for boldness. If I were to like go back and take a kind of like a record of all the prayers I've ever prayed, I could probably say I prayed for boldness. I could probably count those on my fingers and toes. I don't think it would go beyond that. Likely, most of us in this room don't pray for boldness very much, if at all. Usually we pray for uh, safety, keep me and my family safe. We pray for protection. We pray for clarity. And these are, these are good things to pray for. And even we pray those for ourselves, and I will always advocate uh, praying for ourselves because that is important. Now, I don't know the answer to this question I'm about to ask, but I wonder, is it possible to pray for protection and boldness at the same time? Is it possible to pray for safety and boldness at the same time? Because one thing I notice, not just here, but in the entire book of Acts, not one of these guys is praying for safety. 
Not one of these guys is praying for an easy time or green light after green light after green light. But they are praying for boldness. Uh, I've been keeping a small catalog. In fact, this, there's only a third entry as of now, but I like trying to keep track of, like, what are the types of prayers that God is going to answer almost immediately? One I learned early on is if you pray the prayer, God, give me patience. Typically, a circumstance is right on the heels where your patience is going to be tested. Something similar is if you pray for more faith, it's not usually too long after where a circumstance tests that very faith that you ask to be tested. And I think this boldness prayer can be added to this little club of immediately answered prayers. God, give me an opportunity for boldness. Give me an opportunity or chance to speak up. I think he's going to answer that almost immediately. Something else I like about this entire Acts 4, the entire book of Acts, is it says that, um, that verse 28 says, everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. When everyone in the world was against Jesus... But one thing I want to point out, and I would especially like everyone to notice, maybe above everything else this morning, is that at no point is God wringing his hands in worry. God's not having anxiety attacks about all this. God is not wiping the sweat off of his forehead saying, whew, glad they got out of that one. What this tells me is that God is in control, has been in control the entire time. He's not losing sleep. He's not staying up late Worried about all this. I know some of us, and I, and I fall into this often enough, but some of us, we get in this pattern of feeling like, oh, I don't feel like God is working in my life all that much. Or I just haven't sensed his leading or sensed his direction all that much lately. If we take a catalog of our prayers, how many are really about us? About our comfort and about things that we want. Maybe even good and holy things but I wonder how much your life would be shaken up, how much God would jump in if we started praying for boldness. If you were here last week and you were here for our 20th anniversary celebration as a church, and we did a number of things, and one of the bigger things we did was we have debuted a vision statement, a dream for the entire church to uh, kind of uh, fall into over the next three years, and we have it over here on this banner and out in the lobby. It's hard to miss. Bridging the gap to those without Jesus so that no one has to live without hope. And this was inspired by a couple of things, but one thing it was inspired by were these words from Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes this, Remember that in the past you were without Christ. You weren't citizens of Israel and you didn't know about the agreements with the promises that God made to his people. You had no hope. And you did not know God. Yes, at one time you were far away from God, and, but now in Christ Jesus, you are brought near to him. You are brought near to God through the blood sacrifice of Christ. This can be many of our stories. There was a time in our life when we felt there was no hope for us, and there was certainly no Jesus as part of our lives. Uh, we've been working on this statement, praying over it, working through it, workshopping it uh, for several months. We started looking at this back in May, staff, elders, leadership team. And along with that, we kind of did like a demographic study of the area. And in a five-mile radius of this building, there are 80,000 people living. And so on these walls, we have these spots. They're hard to ignore. They're hard to miss. And they're different colors, but there are 800 spots up on these walls. Each spot represents 100 people. 
And we also, in that five-mile radius, we kind of looked at the churches, and we about know the attendance of each of those churches. And we determined that there are probably, in reality, about 10,000 people who are connected to a church. But we wanted to be generous, and we said, we'll up that to 15,000 people. So there are 150 gold dots representing uh, people who are connected to a church in this five-mile radius. But then there are 650 blue dots of people who are seemingly, safe to say, without Jesus and very much possibly without hope. Hope that they can have through either us or one of these gold dots. There are actually four white dots with SWC on them. They're, like I said, white. And just to kind of in a sea of these colors, there's one and then there's one in each of these sections. Hard to see, but you can get up and find them later if you like. There are about 400 of us. Anyway, outside these walls, we know that hopeless can be a flavor of just our area. We know that uh, anxiety and depression and addictions, those rates are off the charts. We know many months ago that Dayton, Ohio was uh, tagged the OD death capital of the entire nation. Many of us know that. Most of it with, if not all, excuse me, most of it with uh, heroin overdoses. In fact, uh, Eric, our junior high minister, and I, we were at lunch at a restaurant in town just this week, and uh, they were talking loudly. We didn't even have a chance to overhear because they were that loud. Uh, but there was this family openly talking about their heroin-addicted sister. And they were laughing about it, not because it was funny, but just because this has been a reality of their family for so long. And there comes a point that you can't cry about it all the time, so laughing makes it easier. Lots and lots of hopelessness. And that's the reason we want to be bridging this gap. But also there's this line in here that we are brought near to God through the blood sacrifice of Christ. We are in the habit of uh, practicing communion uh, here at Southwest every single week. Communion team, that would be your cue if you want to do your thing. And uh, one thing is uh, if we're here, then we know that we are with Jesus. And because we are with Jesus, that we are now with hope. We have this assurance and we get to celebrate this assurance every single week. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us to have this time of private worship and gratitude and thanks and reflection. But let us focus on that word with. With Jesus, with hope, with fill in the blank. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll start to wrap things up. But I'm going to pray. Father, we want your movement in this moment. Get rid of every stress and distraction, no matter how, uh, no matter how legitimate and pressing they might be on our lives right now. Help us put it to the side and focus on this moment where we get to be thankful and show our gratitude and hear your voice. Be assured of this hopefulness that we have in you and in you alone. But help us worship. Help us hear the words from the stage and put away every voice that would take us away from that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.